Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome into another episode of The Winsome Creationist. I have a special thing that I want to share with you today. And so in this podcast, what we're going to do is go back and pull out an interview that I did with my friend Mark Lambert. This interview was done a couple years ago, and it was in response to one of Inspiring Philosophy's very popular videos on the top 10 biblical objections to young age creationism. Now, you guys know that we like to take a model-building approach on this podcast, meaning we like to start with the assumed truth of creationism and say, okay, well, we believe that this is what the Bible teaches, and so based on that, what does the science look like? What do our models look like? And, and you guys know I'm very passionate about the biblical and theological side of things. So in this one, what we're doing is taking a look at that. I mean, if the Bible doesn't even teach young age creationism or young earth creationism, then what does that mean? So we need to be sure that we are looking at something that is accurate and have an accurate understanding of that. So this was a long video response. And so we're going to break this up into two separate episodes. Both episodes are going to be a little bit longer than the normal. But I think between me and Mark and the back and forth, it's actually going to be a very, very helpful couple of episodes for you. Okay. Following that, we're going to have an episode talking about the uh, ancient Near Eastern worldviews and and how much of that is too much and is there a such thing as too much and what does all of that mean and, and, and are those valuable? And then we are going to have an interview coming up after that with my friend Christian and what we're going to be talking about is, well, given that, you know, modern creationists take the approach that we do. Sometimes there's this criticism of giving evolutionists too much credit. And so that's coming up as well. We're going to be looking at, do we give too much credit to evolutionists as modern creationists? These are all going to be very helpful and fascinating topics for you, I think. And I'm excited to dive in. Without further ado, let's get into part one of my conversation with Mark on the top biblical objections to young age creationism. Here I am with Steve Schramm. I'm Pastor Mark Lambert, Liberty Hill Baptist Church. Um, and we uh, both believe in a young earth uh, age for the earth. Wow, that was awkwardly repetitive. Um, so recently, there has been a guy, um, uh, Michael Jones, uh, known as Channel's Inspiring Philosophy. He did a video on how the Bible does not teach young earth creationism supposedly top 10 reasons um we've seen the video and thought you know i, I love michael but i uh, don't think these reasons of his actually hold water and so we're going to take a look at him and um respond to that and so um again my name's uh pastor mark lambert if you're watching this you probably already know who i am um pastor here at uh liberty hill baptist church in moody texas um that's basically my claim to fame is that I uh, convinced a congregation somewhere that I know what I'm talking about and they hired me as their <laughs> pastor. So um, I'm, I'm glad to do this, man. I just love studying the Bible and uh, and, and teaching. So uh, there, there you go. That's me. Introduce yourself, Steve. 
uh, Steve Schramm. I um, host a podcast and YouTube channel also called Bible Nerd, uh, Bible Nerd Podcast, Bible Nerd TV. And I've been doing online ministry stuff since like April of 2017. So you can find anything from me at steveschramm.com. But um, yeah, kind of the same boat. Um, you know, I don't, I don't even have the official um pastor uh, title to go by my name so uh, but but there are some crazy people who trust me to deliver some sort of knowledge uh, every uh, every week um, I've been a little lax with that lately because of um, stuff I've been doing in my business but uh, every time I get a chance I like to do some uh, some Bible teaching and uh, you know I just uh, I'm with you you know I love the Bible and I just want to see it uh, being properly handled and properly taught and um you know you're going to run into times when you have good christian brothers and sisters who you disagree with and you know this is just one of those issues that it does seem to be contentious um and i know both mark and i are kind of in the camp of well you know we can have these conversations without totally um coming unglued and 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 hating our brother and our sister uh and and being contentious about it and so we're allowed to think we're right and michael is of course allowed to think he's right um even if we're convinced that he's 100 percent wrong and um i you know i don't want to give away too much here we're going to kind of go through this and and i'll kind of be quiet and let mark take the reins uh for the most part but um one of the things that i thought of when i saw the title of michael's video and then um you know learned that we were going to give a response to it and everything the title of the video is actually the top 10 i think it's something like the top 10 biblical arguments against young age creationism or the top 10 reasons that the bible doesn't teach young age creationism or young earth creationism something like that and i thought you know as i went through them i thought well if these are truly the top biblical reasons not to be a young earth creationist um I think I'm on pretty solid ground. So hopefully, you know, our job throughout this stream is going to be to convince you of the same, or at least to, to offer uh, some different ways to think about some of the points he made. So I'm excited to dive into them. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned about the, uh, uh, you know, that, disagreeing on this issue isn't something that will, you know, disqualify someone from being a fully, uh, being a Christian, right? That, that it's a secondary issue. Your salvation doesn't hinge on it. Um, and, and I just want to say up front, um, not that I'm under any illusions that uh, Michael Jones will watch this, but uh, I have nothing but love for Michael. Um, his videos are amazing top-notch quality. Uh, he really does his research. Uh, I've been watching some of his stuff on Genesis, um, his recent video on the archaeological stuff about Abraham um, and patriarchs. I mean, just excellent, excellent stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things where I hate to take shots at someone that I really have such great respect for, but I watched this video and I was just like, oh, come on, Michael. That that's not no uh, yeah yeah no. and and let me just let me let me if i could echo and underscore that point i'm with you um michael i think uh, me and and you and of course there are many others um i think over a hundred thousand uh subscribers he has um that would that would all agree and say man like this guy makes some really really great videos i honestly i have to be honest here like i have the same um um you know point to uh, or or problems to point out with this video that I actually have with a lot of other well-argued 
Christian thinkers, um, those who are even professional philosophers and apologists. Um, two that come to mind for me immediately, I'm just going to call them out, are, um, are uh, Dr. William Lane Craig and then also Greg Kokel. These, these men are two of probably two of my favorite people in the world to listen to. I spend time with their content probably every single day. But for some reason, for I don't know why, but for some reason, when it comes to this issue, I don't see the strength in their points that I see on on other issues, and I see just just small little logical jumps. And we're going to try to point some of those out tonight. Maybe this will give you something to think about, where maybe this point's being pressed a little bit too far, or this point doesn't quite make the point that you think it does. Um, and so that's uh, the kind of spirit that we want to approach it with. Um, I too, I love Michael's videos, so you know. If he ever watches this, I hope he knows I'm a huge fan. Uh, I just disagree here, and I think there's room for that disagreement. Yeah, I, I just looked. He's got 178,000 subscribers. Um, so, you know. It's awesome. Because he makes yeah. a fine product. Um, I, I've actually used some of his videos in church. Um, wow. And, you know, That's this, awesome. this is, uh, Here's this guy who who explains it better than I probably could. So here, let's just play this video. And so, um, good stuff. But all right, let's yeah. get into this. Um, um, I, I think the first clip we have here is just kind of his introduction before we get into the 10. Uh, because the way he even sets up the whole thing, I think, really shows that uh, where, where, where he's going wrong. And then we'll unpack it as we go. So let's uh, play this clip. If you haven't heard... There are millions of people today who believe the Earth is only about 6,000 years old. And about 4,000 years ago, there was a worldwide flood that destroyed all life on land, except for a few people and two of every animal that survived in an ark. The basis of this theory comes from many who say we ought to take a literal or plain reading of the Bible, the holy book of Christianity. The rationale behind this young Earth view is that they are just taking the plain reading of the text, and that Christians who believe the earth is old have to misconstrue or reinterpret passages to make the Bible fit with an ancient earth and the theory of evolution. But what many young earth creationists don't realize is that there are several passages within the Bible itself that create problems for the young earth theory. Meaning if we took the plain reading of the text in many places, it would actually contradict the view that the Earth and the universe are only about 6,000 years old. These are the top 10 biblical passages that create problems for the young Earth theory. Okay, so there we have um, his little introduction of setting it up. Um, any thoughts there before I jump in? I've got some notes, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing that, that I, you know, I think is important to stress at this point is... Well, the point that he wants to make is that taking passages literally would create problems for the text. Now, there are a couple different ways that you could you could actually approach this. Um, and actually, uh, Mark has been on my podcast twice now where we discussed things um, along these lines. Um, you're you're going to see that many of the passages that Michael talks about uh, come out of even Genesis 1 and 2. And um, there are even reasons to think that you could arrive at uh, something like a young earth, even if you didn't use 
passages from Genesis 1 and 2. So those are all trajectories that one could go down. The simple point that I want to make here is that um, if his point is that taking passages literally creates problems, then what one has to do is define what's meant by the term literal or what's meant by the plain reading. Um, something that I like to say is the natural reading of the text. Um, and, and the reason for this is because a lot of times when critics of the young earth or young age view use the term, what they end up in practice meaning is something like a, a, a wooden hyper-literalism almost, um, such that we might say that Jesus was calling himself a door uh, in the, uh, I think it's in the book of Revelation when he talks about I am the door. And um, that sort of thing is not what a young earth creationist uh, means. When we say we take the passage literally um, or plainly or naturally, uh, we mean that we're taking it according to a historical grammatical hermeneutic. That hermeneutic allows for metaphor. It allows for simile. It allows for all kinds of features um, in the text that could be used to uh, exegete the text. And so what we don't want to do, what, what I fear that Michael has done here immediately is set up a straw man um, of what the young age creationist believes. And uh, I think you'll see that uh, sort of, you know, that prediction sort of borne out as we move through some of his later objections. Yeah, it seems to me that he's not so much um, arguing against a young age for the earth so much as he's arguing against a specific type of hyper-literalist interpretation, which virtually no one actually takes. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll, get, we'll see it unfolding as we uh, get yeah, into for these. Sure. So let's not, for let's sure, not belabor right. that. Um, too much, you know. One thing I do want to mention about this this, this idea that, um, uh, and and I have heard this, so I'm not going to fault him too much. Where it's like, you know, we take the plain reading, whereas the old Earth people they're twisting the scripture to match. It's like, okay, I've, I've heard that claim made by people, and it's like, no, I, and I know legitimate, sincere old Earth believers who have a high view of scripture, and they're just doing their best, and you know. Or whatever you know um but i have actually heard old earth people argue where uh, they interpret scripture to fit their old earth beliefs where it's like they already believe old earth and then they twist the scripture where they flat out say it can't mean that because the earth is old so we have to reinterpret that yeah so, this is actually if i can this know. is an important point to make so um generally Okay. Um, again, I'm sp I'm speaking very generally because there's always more nuance. But generally, you have people who are going to um, take a young Earth creationist view of of these texts. You're going to have an old Earth creationist view of these texts, and then you're going to have some who fall somewhere in the middle and say, "Well, I just don't think the Bible is really um, is is really teaching that at all." And it's very common for people who fall into that middle. Uh, bucket to be um, misunderstood even by by both sides. Um, but also sometimes they don't really understand um, the, the true gravity um, 
of how much this happens. In other words, you know, for, for my, Michael kind of derogatorily said that young earth creationists often accuse folks of twisting the text. Um, but again, Mark, I'll just second that point. I mean, again, legitimate good brothers I have interacted with, they will 100% unashamedly tell me, and I even responded to one of them uh, on, on my blog and directly took his words. And, and, you know, I mean, he was not ashamed of this, where he said, yeah, if we have good reason to think that, you know, from science, we have we have a particular view that's pretty well uh, understood, then we're going to have to reinterpret our understanding of scripture on that point. I heard Dr. William Lane Craig himself say this yesterday on an interview that I watched. And, and so it is important to realize that that Michael um, Michael is right. There are people who are going to get his view wrong and, and misunderstand that. But there, I would say there are many more people who are in the old earth camp than there are in the, well, I don't really care what the age of the earth is. The text isn't teaching that camp. And so it would not be correct to say that the people in the old earth camp um, are not doing this, even though I might not agree with some of the young earth creationist language. They're twisting scripture to make, you know, whatever. Like, you know, if we leave all of the inflammatory stuff out and just look at what they're doing with the text and the reasons why, this really is what they're doing by their own admission. That's an important point to make. I know we don't want to belabor this point, but that is a really important one. Important one. Yeah, I think just what the kind of last thing I'd want to say on this is that, you know, we have to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush, right? Because just as there are sure. um, old earth creationists, you know, um, even you know, theistic evolutionists who are, you know, just trying to do the best they can to understand. They're not, you know, going in there twisting scripture and some that are, but then there's also young earth creationists who um, are just going into, you know, whatever side we're pointing at, don't paint with too broad a brush, take the person who's in front of you for what they're actually saying and believe. So, okay. Good point. Let's go ahead and jump on in here and see what, uh, these top 10 are. See, see if our belief in uh, the young age of the earth is in trouble here, okay? Number 10, Genesis 17, 17. Genesis recounts the story of Abraham and Sarah, who were old in age and had no children of their own. God appears to Abraham and says he will have a son in his old age. And then in Genesis 17, it reads, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So Abraham thinks it's biologically impossible for someone past the age of 100 to have a child. But this seems to contradict the ages of his ancestors, also known as the early patriarchs, who were supposed to live for hundreds of years and have children in their old ages. According to the Masoretic dates, many of Abraham's ancestors we're supposed to be alive when God made this promise to Abraham in his 100th year, and his ancestor Eber supposedly outlived him. So shouldn't Abraham's reply to God have been that many people alive are having children in their old ages? So having a child at the age of 100 is perfectly normal. More importantly is the fact that based on what Genesis 12 says, Abraham's own father Terah would have had to have fathered Abraham at his own age of 130. So shouldn't Abraham's reply to God have been that having a child past the age of 100 is perfectly normal? After all, his own father had him when he was 130. The whole episode in Genesis 17 
implies Abraham didn't know of anyone, his own father included, who had a child past the age of 100. And this would imply that when Genesis assigns high ages to the patriarchs, it is probably not their literal ages, but symbolic numbers for theological messaging. And that would mean Genesis doesn't give us a literal chronology back to the creation of Adam, damaging the young earth creationist view that the Bible documents through the ages of the patriarchs that the earth is only 6,000 years old. For a better understanding of the symbolic view of the ages of the patriarchs, see our video on Genesis 5. Okay, so uh, there we go. Abraham would not have found it laughable. He knew that people could have children that old. Yeah. Um, this, this is one of those where I was actually like, hmm, okay, well, let's get into the text because, well, I mean, if your own dad sired you at 130, <laughs> right? Having a kid at 100 ain't sounding so laughable. Um, yeah. So it almost sounds like he's got a little bit of a point on this one. Yeah, I have to say, I when I first when I first heard this, um, my very first thought on this was, "Wow, that's actually a really really good point." <laughs> you know, just being honest, um, mm -hmm. um, and and this is why you know there's a verse in Proverbs that says, uh, "I'm going to butcher it." I don't I don't know how I don't know the exact way it's phrased, but the point of the verse is, um, you know, somebody's argument might sound pretty good until you hear the counter argument. And um, so it's really important to always dig in and, and not be too, um, you know, intimidated by things at first. You know, you, you, we have faith in the Bible. We trust in the Bible. This is true when we deal with skeptical attacks, too. You know, we need to we need to 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 think circumspectly and think about the whole counsel of God and think about the text deeply to see if we're um, if we're on the right track. Now, I just want to make uh, I'll make one point and then I'll let you come back on it and then I have another point too at some point here. Um, but that is uh, he tends to throughout the video use the word imply in a way that I think oftentimes is a stretch. Um, and he one of the things he said here on this uh, on this last round was that that Abraham, um, Abraham's laughter would have him believing or have him thinking that it was biologically impossible to have a child at, um, you know, 100 years old. I don't necessarily think that Abraham's laughter implies that strong of a conclusion that it was biologically impossible. Um, I mean, I'm sure, and I, I haven't watched them specifically, but I'm sure in plenty of other of Michael's videos, he talks about the fact that these were not, you know, exactly scientifically minded, you know, people. Um, Abraham was a businessman, uh, a herdsman, and, you know, I mean, he, he um, while he was, I'm sure, smart, he was not necessarily concerned with what was biologically impossible or not. So I think that's just a really strong bit of language there that Michael used that makes his point sound a little bit more potent um, than it is. I, I, you know, I wrote down, well, if anything, maybe he thought it was unusual. Maybe he thought it would be unusual to have a, a child at, at that age. Um, uh, but biologically impossible may be too strong. Uh, yeah, did you and, get that and, sense? And too? I would also add, I did, um, and I actually did a little bit of uh, research on that. Um, I, I would also add another thing where he said it implies is that Abraham didn't know of anyone who had a child that old. Well, not necessarily. I mean, he could know of someone. It, it could be something that, you know, he knows happens, but is rather unusual. Um, because, you know, you, you notice uh, um, 
a progression where the ages are getting uh, younger and younger through the genealogies, right? I mean, you got people living 800, 900 years. By the time you get to Abraham, you know, you're talking 150, you know, and then it you know, kind of goes down from there. Well, um, so you, you get this progression. So just because he happens to know um, of someone it happened to doesn't necessarily mean that it is the usual occurrence widespread. <clears throat> um, give you an example. Did you know that in um, 2016, right? So just four, four and a half, five years ago, um, exactly whenever that would be, Mick Jagger uh, fathered his youngest child at the age of 73. Now, if someone were to I did tell not know me, that. if someone were to tell me at the age of 73, hey, uh, you're going to have a kid, <laughs> whatever. You're out of your yeah. mind, dude. I'm 73. Okay, but yeah. I know it happens. Um, in 2020, so just last year, there was a woman in India who gave birth to twins at the age of 74. So wow. we know it happens. But if someone told me at that age I'm going to have a kid, I would laugh, even knowing it can and does happen. So hmm. it actually doesn't imply his laughter does not imply what Michael is saying it does. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I I can't help. I don't know if it's a dad joke thing or the fact that uh, of the time that we're recording this, but um, I can't help but think the Moves Like Jagger song has a little bit more significance now after you telling me that little factoid. So um, anyway, since this is a Christian show, we'll get back to the point. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that that's huge. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because totally I would be like, oh, what? What are you, you kidding me? I'm going to have a kid when I'm 73 years old. Absolutely not. But we do know it happens. Um, and you 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 started to make a point there that is, is very important. It's the other thing that I wrote down is that um, Abraham was many generations following the flood. And if you if you you know rewind the video or whatever, you can actually see that little chart in Michael's video. Michael's video demonstrates very clearly in that chart how the ages were declining. And so it would it was it was a time unlike any other time in the history of the earth. This is the true history of the earth and we're taking it literally. There has been no other time quite like that. It was a it was a genetic bottleneck of pretty epic proportions to happen there at the flood. And so there's really even no modern comparison that, that we could just pull from to compare it to. If that really is what's happening, then um, we have these generations that Abraham was growing up with, and he was watching these generations decline. For all Abraham knew, he wasn't going to live very much longer at all. Um, if you Again, if you look at the decline, he might have thought that, that he was only 10 years away from the grave. And so given that context, surely he would have thought it to be unusual. Well, and, and with that, I'll add, I, I found this interesting because notice he uses the, um, uh, the dates and the ages from the Masoretic text. Yes. The, the, the dating and ages from the Septuagint, um, you wouldn't have uh, those previous generations alive. The only right. ancestors Abraham would have known was his father and his grandfather. That's right. Um, and there's a and, lively and, debate these days about which one is correct. And not to um, you know, throw some sharp elbows at Michael too hard, but in his recent video about the patriarchs, 
he uses the Septuagint dating to support the evidence of Abraham. So I'm like, okay. So I'm like, okay. In this video, you're using the Masoretic yeah. text to make your point on the ages. But in that video, you're using the Septuagint to make your point. Which one is it? Septuagint yeah. or Masoretic text? And he may, you know, he may, he may respond to that challenge with, well, most young earth creationists are going to affirm the Masoretic text. So it's a sort of internal critique. And while that may be a fair point, it's certainly not true that all creationists are on board with the Masoretic dates. And I, I know one personally who's very adamant about taking the Septuagint dates on that and still believes that the, the patriarchs live those great ages. So again, with the broad brush. And and I personally kind of lean towards the Septuagint. I'm not, you know, 100% there, one side or the other. Yeah. Um, case, but here's the thing. There's a case there. Here's the thing. Um, regardless of which one you use, the difference is 1,500 years. So is the earth 6,000 years old or 7,500 years old? I mean, that's right. all that would really get us to. Now, now, right. now here's one thing I want to make. Do uh, um, you have anything else you want to add? I want to make a final point before we move on. Okay. And, and this will probably get repetitive um, because one thing I always ask, and, I, and I've actually, I actually teach my congregation, you know, whenever you come across something that just seems like, oh no, what do I do with that? Ask these two words, so what? If, if, if we grant that everything that he said about Abraham and the age and the date and his laughter and the implications and all of that, if we, if we accept all of that, how does that affect the age of the earth? I mean, what does that actually do for the dating of the events of Genesis? Um, okay, so the ages, the, 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 the large ages aren't accurate. Okay, um, so are the people representing, um, you know, kings or dynasties or clans, you know, all kinds of different things people say? Um, well, okay, it doesn't matter. You're not getting millions of years. You're, you're getting a few centuries added on. I do have one more point I want to make because you're right. You're you're totally right about that. And part of the reason that what you said is true in this particular case is because there are no that we're aware of right now. There are no clear ancient Near Eastern parallels to anything that we to to like what we see in the genealogies in Genesis. The closest thing that we have to that are like Sumerian king lists. And a lot of times people want to argue about these exaggerated non-literal ages um, and to say that there's kind of a parallel between the biblical account and um, at least the kind of thing that was happening in these king lists. But you have to understand, we have hundreds of years happening in the biblical account. The closest thing to this at all are astronomical 30,000 plus years that these numbers are in these other accounts. They're nothing like what's going on in the Bible. So to, to say that there's a direct parallel there is a, is a huge, is a huge stress. And surprisingly, this is one of the things that, um, or a huge stretch. This is one of the things that, um, the Dr. Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig, in getting to his view of Genesis, he actually makes this comparison. This is the, really the strongest comparison he's got to say that the Genesis genealogies could be non-literal. And I think if that's as strong of, of a case as you have, um, well, I think you need a stronger one personally. So good point. So what? You know, well, if you if you know the details, there are some important reasons why it doesn't go through.
Okay, well, let's go ahead and get on to the next um, point that's going to completely undo young earth creationism. Number nine, Genesis 8. A common view among young earth believers is the idea that the earth was covered in a global flood about 4,000 years ago. When Genesis records that God flooded the earth, it should be understood as literally the entire globe because it says the waters covered the face of the whole earth. But there is a problem for this view within Genesis 8. Verses 4 and 5 say the ark came the rest in the mountains of Ararat or Uratu, and the tops of the mountains could be seen at this point. However, later in the chapter, Noah releases a dove and it returns to him because the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. But didn't verse 5 say the tops of the mountains were seen? So verse 9 cannot mean the waters were literally covering the whole earth, implying the entire flood account might be hyperbolic in its description of the flood. And this would mean it was not literally covering the entire globe, but just a regional area. This is also supported by verse 13, where it says the waters dried from the earth. But this obviously cannot literally mean the entire globe, since most of the surface of the earth is still covered by water. So it appears the flood account is describing the flood hyperbolically. It doesn't necessarily teach the entire globe was covered. Okay, so Noah in that ark. What a crazy guy building a big old boat. <laughs> Silly um, Noah. Yeah, come on, man. Just take the animals and go for a hike. It was just a local flood. Um, right. it, you know what? Uh, th this is actually more your wheelhouse than mine. So I, I got a couple little points I might want to make, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you jump on okay. this. Okay. Well, I might, I might disappoint you because I'm, I'm going to be super like, you know, this is a really simple point to me, although I do have a question sort of uh, like your so what question. I have a really good question for people who challenge the flood account like this. Um, first of all, this objection by Michael just simply assumes that all um, young earth creationists are hyperliteralists. It's it's really the same thing again. I'll grant that there could be hyperbole used in the account, but it just doesn't imply that the entire account is written hyperbolically. Those are two entirely different things. Um, ironically, it's 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 him and his you know, in the way he was looking at that passage, it is him who would be using the text hyperliterally in order to justify uh, his position on this. Um, it, it's it's not nobody. No one thinks that we have to take the text hyperliterally here. The words "whole earth" can mean "whole earth," even if a foot of earth was showing. The point is, the whole globe was was being covered. And so, I mean, really, that's the that's the main point that I have with that. Um, but. I've always wondered, I've always wanted to ask this question um, because I've heard people argue for both from the text. I, to, to be fair, I have heard textual arguments given for the regional flood view and for the, um, you know, uh, global flood view. But nobody ever seems to be able to answer this question who takes the regional position. How is it, given the worldview of the people back then, given that they didn't have, you know, necessarily the ability to explore the world like we have today and things of that nature, even though I, I don't think many times they're given a, a, enough credit for how brilliant they were back then. Um, but that's a different conversation. Um, so uh, given that they did have this 
worldview that they were limited by um, travel and other other things. How just how would the account be written if it were meant to teach a global Earth and uh, or a global flood? I, I should say, and you know, and I've heard I've I've had some. Uh, old earthers and others grant this point to me before because it's kind of like well it's not really clear how else it would be written to more clearly teach a global flood if it did so um so i would say even if one could argue for a regional flood in the text uh, for example you could you could maybe do that by saying you know by pointing to some of the nation states and such that are mentioned um, in the entirety of the flood account and saying, well, obviously the writer only had knowledge of these areas. Well, okay, maybe, but like, how would the account be written if a global flood was intended? And I think you'd have something that looks pretty much exactly like what we actually do have there. There we go. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, two, two things that jumped out at me is, um, you know, one I'm not going to go into because it would actually launch into big textual, you know, and it, it's not really what we're getting into now. And I could be completely wrong on what I was thinking. But here's what I want to say. And, and this is one thing that has just always floored me about the um, global flood versus regional flood debate. So what? Because when we're talking about the age of the earth, the, the issue with the flood isn't how big was it. The question is, when did it happen? Not how much land, you know, the waters covered, all of it or a little bit of it. The question is, when did it take place in the biblical timeline of Genesis? And so, you know, again, this is one of those, you know, if you completely grant his point, you have an undone young age. I mean, young earth creationism is still a viable option on the table. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, I had never really thought about that. Um, just, for, you know, I'm sure you know this, but for the sake of the listener, um, the reason why you're always going to find – oh, and, you know, what's really interesting is that when Michael started out this section, he said some – young earth creationists. I thought it was really interesting that he said that. Um, he said some young earth creationists take this position. As far as I know, pretty much all of them do. But it's interesting that he said some because that actually weakens his point a little bit. So that's just a, an aside. Um, but um, the reason why so many uh, young earth creationists feel the global flood is important has to do with the nature of the fossil record. Um because if you have a only a regional flood, then you have to have an explanation for the um, uh, the, the sort of burial of the fossils and things that we find all over the earth. And uh, you have to be able to explain that stuff without the millions of years of time. And the, if the flood in the Bible is in fact global, then frankly, we have something that, uh, and this is arguable on a few minute points, but I mean, I, I think for the most part, flood geologists have been very, very successful in what they have, um, what they have found in models that they've created. And we have a pretty good reason to think that the Bible uh, is reporting accurately about this. And so there is a stake in that for 
young earth creationist when we start talking about science. But insofar as we're talking only about the text of scripture, then your point is exactly right. It, it, it only matters when it happened not the extent of it in, in its entirety. And since Michael is going to be the first one to say, well, the first thing we need to focus on is the text of Scripture and what it says, then, um, then yeah, I think your point is exactly right. All right. Good point about the fossils. This is why, this is why I wanted you to be part of this. <laughs> you think of those things that – I'm not a science guy. That's not the stuff that comes to my mind. Okay, <laughs> let's go ahead and take a look at the next one. Number eight, Genesis 2.24. Young Earth creationists are often proud of the fact and almost go so far as to brag that they just take the plain reading of scripture and don't have to reinterpret anything. In my debate with Ken Hoven, I asked if he takes all of Genesis 1 and 2 literally, and he replied, I have a question for Ken on Genesis 2. Do you take the entire chapter of Genesis 2 literally? Absolutely. But this is actually impossible because Genesis 2.24 cannot be understood literally. After Adam is introduced to Eve, it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Since married couples are not sewn together, this obviously cannot be understood as literal. Some young earth believers try to get around this by saying it's a reference to procreation and the act of making children. But that would mean they interpret the phrase becoming one flesh metaphorically to mean having offspring, since the text does not literally say to make children. Verse 24 is obviously metaphorical language, but that means the text of Genesis 1 and 2 could also be using other metaphors and was not meant to be entirely literal. <sighs> okay, let me go well, ahead and say this. <laughs> let me go ahead and say this so that I can upset um, uh, some of my uh, young earth brethren um, because, uh, yeah, I don't go to Dr. Dino for um, hermeneutics expertise um, any more than I go to him for tax expertise. <laughs> Um, I, I, I like Kent Hovind. I, I mean, he did some really good videos once upon a time. Um, yeah. but he's not a great example to stand up as the, you know, um, emblematic of what young earth people believe in that sense. I mean, yeah. Who well, it's actually a, it, thinks that, 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 that again, the hyper literal, wooden yeah. just like like so over i don't know anyone who means stuff yeah. like that when they say literal well and it's important okay there's a couple things here right going on so um unfortunately now golly you know there's so much so much that could be said you know i i, I owe a debt of gratitude for certain to uh kent hovind i mean honestly Honest to goodness, I probably would not know what apologetics is if it wasn't for for Ken Hoban. I mean, he he really did have a big impact on me in, initially. And um, while I disagree with many things that he has to say, um, uh, especially the more I've learned, <laughs> frankly, the more I end up disagreeing with him, uh, I do owe him that great of that debt debt of gratitude. So I'm thankful for that. Now, however, let me say that um, while you know part of the issue is that he has such a big platform, and so. Um, it is. It is not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily 
um, wrong uh, for Michael to use this as an example of young earth believers, but it may be wrongheaded given that it's certainly not the best representation of um, scholarly young earth creationist work. Um, that's, you know what I mean? If we're, I think in I think in any other context, Michael would want to have his arguments steel manned instead of straw manned, and so I would like to see the same courtesy extended this way. Um, now, all that said, um, I've spent plenty of time with Kent Hovind's content over the years, and when Kent Hovind says that now again, I didn't see this particular debate. Maybe there was more context here, but even when Kent Hovind says, "I'm taking the text literally." He does not mean that every single word is, is, is literal in the sense that Jesus is a physical door, okay? And that's the kind of thing that's going on in Genesis 2.24. I have to say, I, I, I honestly believe that, that Michael was being very uncharitable on this point. In fact, I, I, I would go so far as to say that he was making a graver mistake on this point than Kent Hovind would have made by affirming it as being literal. Um, because no young earth creationist that I am aware of takes that position on that text. There is plenty of reason to think that that verse is metaphorical um, and plenty of reason to think that other verses in Genesis 2 um, are metaphorical. Um, you have even some poetry and things going on, but, but that does not mean that the account is somehow non-literal in its um, overall usage or its overall meaning. And, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, I get the feeling that the so what question is about to come up again. I still have no idea what this has to do with the age of the earth. Um, but literal interpretation allows for metaphor. It just does. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, like this question came up in a series that we were doing at church recently where, um, you know, the question was, how do you know what to take literal, what to take metaphor? And um, I mean, the really the answer to that question is reading comprehension. I mean, whenever you're reading a novel or a magazine or the newspaper or anything, how do you know what to take literal and what to take not literal? Because you know what metaphor and simile and analogy and other figurative and poetic, you know, turn of a phrase, idioms, you know, you know what those things are. Now, with the Bible, we're detached culturally, so, you know, we may have to do a little extra work to pick up on phrases we may not catch right off, but it, it's the exact same thing. And so, yeah, and, you know, I don't want to belabor too much on this because I, I think we can, can see that this doesn't actually, I don't even know, it, like you said, if this are the top 10, yeah, we're, we're, we're in good shape. Yeah, I, I think so. And in fact, let me just recommend a little resource for everybody. Now, to be clear, I haven't read this book for myself yet, but I have heard some teaching around it. And um, the, the, the point of the book is obvious enough. There's a book you can grab called Metaphors We Live By. It's a uh, popular level uh, book. I, be I believe it's a popular level book of a more uh, scholarly uh, version that's been done by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And the 
the overall point of the book is that human beings live by metaphor. We do not realize how often we're using metaphor in our everyday speech. I mean, we use it a lot, like a lot. Things that you would never that you would never uh, think of as being metaphor. This book will, I guarantee you, expose how much you use metaphor. So what's the point? Well, the point is that even through our usage of metaphor, we still mean literal things. There are literal, you know, if, if we say, um, if we say we are, I'm, I'm not good at coming up examples off the top of my head, but like if we say we are stuffed, for example, after we eat a big meal, no, nobody gets the idea that we have been, our guts have been ripped out. We've been taken down to the Build-A-Bear store. They've kissed the little heart, placed it in us, and pressed the little petal and filled us up with plush. Nobody thinks that. But we mean something literal. We mean our belly is full, right? But it's a it's a it's a metaphor of sorts, right? It's a figure of speech. We this is this is so integral to the way that human beings in general communicate. So it, it's it's almost it's actually in one sense it's harder to uh, approach the biblical text knowing this. And in another sense, it's easier to approach the biblical text knowing this. Um, but we can't, in in no context, do we ever speak with complete literal, you know, blow by blow literal speech. It, it's almost impossible for a human being to do given our cognitive ability. So take that for what it's worth. Metaphors we live by. Okay. And um, and I'll just say again, because I think it's just such a useful way of approaching things. So what? You know what, Michael? You're absolutely, completely, totally right. Whenever it says that to become one flesh, it is not being literal. And that affects the biblical timeline. How? It doesn't change one iota of when, when the timing and dating of when these things happened. That's so, right. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Number seven, Genesis 3.22. Genesis 3 recounts the fall of Adam and Eve in the exile from the Garden of Eden. Young Earth creationists believe before this there was no death because God made everything perfect. So Adam and Eve would had to have been created immortal and the fall resulted in their bodies being made mortal, and consequently, death came as a result. However, Genesis 3 never says their bodies were changed or transformed to be mortal. God curses the ground, but never places any curse on their bodies. In fact, all he does is bar them from the tree of life. Verse 22 reads, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication numerous scholars have pointed out is Adam and Eve were already mortal and the only way they obtained immortality in the garden was eating continuously from the tree of life. To make them mortal again, all God had to do was prevent access to this sacred tree. But that means humans were already mortal before the fall and were only granted immortality through a special fruit, not because they were created with immortal bodies. This is also supported by the fact that Adam is called dust, which is an idiom in the Bible to denote that one is mortal. In Genesis, 
it might just be metaphorical language to denote that he was a mortal human, meaning Adam was mortal before the fall, which implies that death was a possibility before sin entered. Okay, there we go. Um, no death before the fall. So what do we do with that? Well, uh, I'm actually curious to hear to hear your thoughts on this. I don't know if um, – yeah, go, why don't um, you start this one out? Here's the thing, and, 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 and again, this is one of those where um, some of my young earth brethren um, may not like me too much. I'm, I'm not completely sold on the no death before the fall thing. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not about to plant my flag on it, um, but it, it doesn't shake my worldview if things died before the fall. I mean, I see the ecosystem. That This is one of the things I've always thought was a pretty good criticism of Young Earth whenever people say, well, now, wait a minute. Look at the whole ecosystem and the way everything is so intricately designed where predators and things killing and eating. And, you know, I mean, um, that seems to be the way that God built it. So things are dying in, in God's plan. You know, and so I'm just like, well, okay. Um, I don't take a hard position on that. And it's not really theologically going to change anything for me if things were dying before the fall. Um, and if mankind isn't naturally immortal and it was the fruit of the tree of life that made them immortal. I'm, again, I come back to, okay, what does this do with the timeline of the age of the earth? Yeah. Well, Okay, cool. So what, just because it may not be clear, actually, to some people what Michael, I think, is trying to to do here. So the point, the shot across the bow, so to speak, that he's taking at Young Earth Creationists is um, that if he can show that death before the fall was possible, then he can extrapolate that to say that humans could have lived um, for th hundreds of thousands of years, um, or, you know, the, the evolution of humanity could have been going along all along, and the Bible would just have really nothing to say um, about that. That's kind of the point that he's wanting to make. He doesn't really follow it through all the way, which kind of surprised me in there, but that, I think that's the point he's trying to make. Now, I, I too, have uh, um, always thought that the old earth point that they would make about um you know the functioning ecosystems and things like that i've always thought that that was a, a pretty good criticism of the young earth position although i i still do um disagree with it but my only point on that would be to say um again michael michael let's say he's able to show that death was possible before the fall he still has not showed from the bible that death was actual before the fall and death being possible is not the same thing as death being actual and i think that's an important point to make you know i mean it might sound like splitting hairs but this is the kind of thing you have to do when we're doing textual study <laughs> and we're, we're trying to get at the meaning of the of the bible um at I mean, at the very, like, I mean, you have to think about the worldview of the people and what they were, what they were taught and what they were, um, 
you know, being taught by God and what they were writing down. And to think that they meant anything other than, um, I'm, I'm not wording this the way that I really want to, but, but it, it's hard for me to think as they read the, as they wrote these words and, and as, as Genesis one twenty eight and one twenty nine were penned, which talk about the, uh, both the animals and the humans having a vegetarian diet. It, it's just really hard to believe for me that what was going on in the mind of the writer was that there were thousands of years of death going on prior to the time of creation. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me like that's what's in the mind of the writer. And if that's what we're trying to get at, what the author meant when he wrote, then we have to be very careful to make these sort of distinctions. And so it, 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 it's very possible that the writer thought that death before the fall for both humans and animals was possible and that the tree, the fruit of the tree was what was uh, essentially carrying on the immortality, uh, especially of humanity. And if that's the case, fine. The only evidence we have for when the biblical writer thought that death was actual was post-fall. The only time that we see the introduction of the penalty for, you know, um, you know, the the actual taking of an animal life as a sort of sin covering for a um, human uh, sin is in that event. We see the cursing of the ground happening and we see things like thorns and thistles and um, having to toil extra hard. So you see, we don't, I mean, the writer, to, to make Michael's point, I think the writer of Genesis would have had to have it have in his mind that for thousands of years prior to Adam and Eve, there was no laborious work going on uh, on the earth. I, I mean, to me, it, it just it's just it doesn't seem like the writer of the text is thinking the way that Michael is thinking. I hope I'm making some sense. I'm trying to get around to the point there, but but death being possible is not the same as death being actual. And I think that even if the biblical writer thought that death was possible, I don't think that Michael could show biblically that the that the writer of the Bible thought that death pre-fall was actual. And I think that's what he would have to do in order to prove his point. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because even even if I think that, you know, there was animal death um, and, you know, I understand the arguments around Romans about, you know, is that all death or just human death? Um, yeah, there's nothing there that says that, you know, just because it was the tree of life that was keeping them immortal, that that's, that still means there was no death. Right? That they weren't dying, you know, the, the, their natural state right. that they were created in, that they lived in, that they existed in from the beginning before the fall was access to the tree of life. So there wasn't death. They didn't know what, right. they didn't experience it. That's right. Um, and so it, what's interesting, and and you're right, you know, uh, back to your initial point about um, how he was probably getting at um, if death was possible, then, you know, okay, now insert evolution. Um, okay, but in order to insert evolution, you still have to work with the biblical timeline and when and how exactly did all that happen because whether or not Adam and Eve were able to kick the bucket pre-fall does nothing with regard to the timeline. Exactly right. That's right. So, 
That's right. So we're still okay. we're O for what three at this point? Something like that. Uh, that, that. That was number four. Wow. All right. Here uh, we go. Yeah. We're, 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 yeah. There we go. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Number six, Genesis two four. Young Earth creationists often argue that Genesis two is a recap of what takes place on day six within Genesis one when God made humans. But Genesis 2-4 poses a problem for suggesting this chapter is a recap. The verse begins with, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is what scholars call a toledoth, and it is used throughout Genesis, almost like chapter markers for the ancient audience. However, when this phrase is used, it always introduces what comes after the person or the generations that follow him. It is never used to denote a recap of something that happened prior to this. Biblical scholar John Walton notes that the phrase in Genesis 2 is probably teaching the same idea, and that what takes place in Genesis 2 is meant to be a sequel, not a recap of what happens in Genesis 1. After God establishes the cosmos, he then hones in on one region on the earth to create a garden environment. But this would mean what is commonly viewed as the creation of the first man in Genesis 2 is not actually the creation of the first man. Since in the prequel to Genesis 2, God elects all humans to be his image, and this would take place before Genesis 2 and before Adam is believed to have been created from dust. Scholars like Michael Heiser note Genesis 1 speaks of encompassing all of humanity, not just one man or one couple implying when God made man in his image, it was meant to include all humans, wherever they were existing at that time. Then Genesis 2 picks up after this with the creation or election of two specific individuals to act as priests in the Garden of Eden. So because of the Toledoth in Genesis 2, the implication is Adam came after when all humanity was made in the image of God and therefore was not the first human. Okay. We've been getting Genesis 1 and 2 wrong all this time. Yes. What a shame. I know, right? You're going to have to hang it all up. (laughs) There we go. Um, Yeah. You know, what's funny is I remember um, I I am – I'm a self-proclaimed fundamentalist um, circa, you know, 1910, not, you know – Right. Um, crazy nut job, judgmental, you know, uh, the, the dad from Footloose kind of fundamentalist. Right. Um, right. Right. And, and, and I remember, I mean, you want to talk about some fundamentalist cred. I got my degree from Liberty University, um, oh, where, it, where, 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 you know, I, I had to take, um, a creation, you know, origins course. And I always find it interesting whenever they, uh, whenever old earth, uh, believers present the Toledoth thing like we've no like, like we don't know what that is like, like it's <laughs> something that you know that creation is just like oh no there's chapter markers and okay so what do we do yeah. um <clears throat> yeah it's in yeah. there man um it's not like we haven't thought of these things um yeah but you know what one thing and, and and i'll let um well one thing that really just jumped out at me he mentions Walton and, and, and that Genesis 2 is a sequel rather than a recap. 
But Walton doesn't think that Genesis 1, this is really weird for Walton to say it's a sequel because Walton doesn't take Genesis 1 to be events at all. It's a right. description of it's a description of functionality being assigned. That's right. It's a it's a non-event. So how can you have a sequel to a non-event? Yeah. That's interesting. I'm glad you caught that. I didn't think about that. So hmm. I, I, yeah. Anyway, I'll I'll let you kind of jump in with whatever you got. Yeah, well, I mean, uh so uh so what, right? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, um it, it, it what you have here, I mean, there are numerous scholars who know how to interpret these passages who would just simply disagree that what Walton and then Jones um, have claimed about this, uh, allegedly Walton has, has claimed this, um, they would just simply disagree with that. I mean, one of the most well-known um, Jewish interpreters of of the text that is often used by um, by Christians uh, is Casuto, and Casuto uh, believes it's a zooming in on the events of Day Six. So, um, you know, pick your scholar here. You know, if we wanted to get more technical about it, you know, frankly, I would have to look in, you know, to the to the text myself a little bit deeper to see if it was, you know, if there was you know, how much merit there was to this. But for one thing, you do notice that the Taladot in the beginning is the Taladot of the heavens of the earth. It's not uh, the Taladot of a person who is writing about events that have came after him. So there is a fundamental difference between the first Taladot and the rest of them. So I don't know that you can say – in other words, I think it might be another case of just reaching too far to say that it has to mean that it's a strict sequel, that that whatever um, uh, it's talking about would have had to happen after the events of, uh, of the actual creation day six. Um, it really seems like somewhat of a stretch to me to have to think that, especially – I mean – when you when you get into the well, I mean I don't know how else to make the point. I, I mean I just don't think I just don't think he's right about it. I mean I don't know maybe I'm not being clear here, but when you have that, um, what does it even mean to have the Taladot of the heavens and the earth? Like this is the these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. The heaven and the earth aren't writing what comes after them. So I don't know how you can how you can make that point. It, it's like when it's like the backwards uh, or the reverse of when um, old Earth creationists want to say that well, no, day seven doesn't have an evening and a morning, so the rest of the days obviously didn't have one either, even though the text says they did. Um, that really doesn't seem to make any sense. What Jones is having to do here is posit a second event. You're you're actually and and what many try to do now I don't know that that Michael Jones would actually go along with this, but in the past what many have tried to do is say that these are two um two contradictory creation accounts. That's what like Meredith Klein and other proponents of the framework interpretation. I believe our friend Tyler Vela, I believe he takes this view as well, um, that these are actually contradictory creation accounts. I don't think that 
you can get that. I, I don't think that that view works when you actually look at the details that are there. But uh, I guess, I don't know, suppose that Michael is right. Suppose he's right and it is a sequel. Um, I'm not really sure how that harms the, you know, the Genesis account. I mean, like, I guess the worst I would have to do is admit that the the humans that are being referred to in Genesis 1 are not Adam and Eve. Um, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but I guess that's the worst I would have to, to live with is that it starts talking about Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And it's still talking about the events that are going on in the garden, which is what I think it's talking about with day six. So, um, I, it, okay, I'll grant Michael that point. Let's say that that really is what it means. I'm doubtful that that's what it means, but let's say that really is what it means. Um, okay, so what? You know, and one thing I would add, um, you know, whenever these, um, you know, Toledotes appear, it's basically, you know, here are the generations of, that's, that's how it's translated. The, the implication, though, is that here are the um, tales of, here here are the events um, uh, flowing from, you know, or having to do with, you know, kind of thing. And so if, if, if Genesis 1 you know, is creation, and, and, and it's just the, you know, okay, he made it. Now, here are the events going forward involving the heaven and the earth, which actually, you know, because it's like, it doesn't mean, okay, now here's the creation. It just means here's the events that unfold. Um, you, you might like this. If, um, if Heiser is on the right track, then the events that are unfolding very much do involve the heavens and the earth. It is it, 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 not not referring to the, the 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 physical creation of the heavens, but also the the persons in the heavens, and then the events that unfold going forward. And so, the the generations of the heaven and the earth don't refer to creation of the heavens and the earth, but rather the unfolding events after I, I don't know I, I'm, yeah. I'm basically wildly speculating now so you yeah. go ahead and talk before no, I well, embarrass myself you know I mean I uh, as you were saying that I got to thinking about the uh, uh, the Bible project I don't know how much time you spent with their content um, but but they I think they do a fair job of um, kind of you know, explaining some of the stuff, uh, and again, you're you're, you're maybe uh, those who are watching or listening may be missing some serious context here, talking about Michael Heiser and the Bible Project and stuff. But um, for, for those of us who are, I'm not going to recap all that because we'd be here for a very long time. Um, but for those who are who are kind of up on what we're talking about there, you know, they they really talk about, especially in the Bible Project, how you had this intermingling, like the whole Garden of Eden scene was essentially the place where heaven met earth that that is the point the point is that this was the abode of god on earth this was the abode abode of the divine council on the earth and and so you know while i've never thought about it this way before uh, again i'd have to look more specifically at the text but i think i would be fine with saying that 
Genesis 1 describes this in the most general of terms. And then the first time that Adam and Eve specifically are called out or whatever are are in Genesis 2. I mean, if that's the you know, I mean, if that's as bad as it gets, I would say fine. I I still, again, just to be clear for everybody, the point or the intended implication is that God could have created uh just like the evolutionary story would purport, uh, you know, humans that have gone uh, that have lived long before Adam and Eve. And so in the beginning of creation, they were all humans were endowed with the image of God. And evolutionists say we needed a population of like 10,000 of the last common ancestor in order to get the current, you know, um, homo sapiens. And so there you go, Adam and Eve were basically called out from that group and, and so on and so forth. But again, while even if, and I don't think it does again, but even if what Michael is saying um, would imply the possibility of that happen, the question for the faithful interpreter of the Bible is, is that the idea that the writer had in mind? And I just don't see that anyway. I don't think it implies that even if it allows for the possibility of it. That's, that's stretching it too far. Um, in my in my humble opinion, um, I think that's all I have to say about that. You know, and and one thing I'll I'll I'll, I'll end with this is if um, if Jones's take on Genesis one um, or something along the lines of you, you know Walton with it being a functionality or a temple, you know, kind kind of inauguration or you know uh, Tyler's polemic. Um, like like anything, it's like a, it all removes it as an event, and it's a description. It's a it's a theological teaching. And then so again, I'm back to how then can Genesis two be a sequel of a non-event? Which means that the timeline of biblical history actually would start at Genesis two four, with Adam and Eve. Right, that's right. So we're back to young yeah. earth being on the table, a viable option. He hasn't removed it at all. Right. It's, it's, but if his argument is true, then, um, then the intent of his argument fails is, right. is I think what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're back to square one again. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Next. Number five, Jeremiah four, 23 to 26. Young earth creationists, often assert that Genesis 1 cannot be read to mean anything other than a literal six-day creation of the cosmos. When theistic evolutionists interpret it to mean something else, they are reading that into the text. But it seems the prophet Jeremiah used very similar language from Genesis 1 to metaphorically describe the fallen northern kingdom of Israel. In Jeremiah 4, the prophet is warning Judah that they will be desolated like the Northern Kingdom, if they do not repent. And in doing so, he described what happened in Northern Israel by heavily borrowing from Genesis 1. He says Northern Israel is now formless and void. There is no light, no man, no birds of the air, and no vegetation. Even the very conservative scholar, John MacArthur, acknowledges the language was taken from Genesis 1 and is used in reverse to speak of what happened in northern Israel. But this language 
does not mean the fabric of space-time opened up and sucked out the land of the Northern Kingdom. The sun was still literally shining on the region. There were still humans, and there is no reason to believe birds refused to fly over the area or that no plants grew. Jeremiah is simply using this language to metaphorically say the Northern Kingdom no longer functions properly. But if the same language is used in reverse in Genesis 1, that implies all it is saying is God took a disordered cosmos and made it function properly for human civilizations to begin. Thus, within the scriptures itself, the implication is the language of Genesis 1 does not mean literal material creation and therefore does not necessarily refer to a literal six-day creation. Okay, um, here we go. Jeremiah just completely undid the entire Young Earth Project. Let's pack <laughs> it in, we're done. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you give your reflections because mine's just getting repetitive at this point. So you go ahead and. I I think if I maybe if it wasn't so late, I would be able to think of what it is. I think that he's got a logical fallacy going on here somewhere where he's where he's jumping back and making a conclusion about Genesis 1 that would be unwarranted based on this passage. I'm sure there's some sort of logical or hermeneutical fallacy going on on this, but I, I can't think of it, so I don't want to embarrass myself by uh, by uh, by trying to put one out there. Um, but, I mean, he's right. It's the language of decreation. It uses these terms very um, descriptively, very literarily, uh, metaphorically, imagery is being used, but his conclusion is unwarranted. His conclusion is essentially, well, it's talking about the event metaphorically here. Therefore, it could be metaphorical. The original event it's referring back to could have been metaphorical. That's initially, uh, essentially his point. But in fact, the exact opposite is usually true. Metaphors and analogies, in order for them to be um, um, meaningful, are usually based on something that it is grounded in um, in reality. I mean, uh, if I say, um, you know, even the stuffed <laughs> metaphor that I used before, you know, in order for me to be figuratively stuffed, I have to be referring back to a literal meaning of being stuffed. I can't use the figure to refer back to another figure. That doesn't seem to make very logical sense. And so what uh, what Jeremiah is doing is using the language of creation and, and masterfully, in my opinion, um, inverting it and 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 essentially saying that this event is like decreation. It, it's essentially like the undoing of the land. It's so catastrophic that it's it's essentially like the undoing of the very fabric of creation. Um, and so, the original um, depth and meaning and splendor of the event only makes the metaphorical decreation point that Jeremiah is making so much stronger. Um, and, and I would say just, I mean, that I, I'm very confident, uh, I'm, I'm very confident given the nature of the, of, of the writing in Jeremiah versus the nature of the writing in Genesis, that I'm on the right track there, but let's give it the worst case scenario. Let's say I'm, I'm not on the right track and it is just talking about, um, 
um, oh, you know, I lost. <sighs> I hate when that happens. I'm getting old. I lost the point I was going <laughs> for on that. But 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 again, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that if it's you know worst case scenario, if it is all metaphorical language, then we're still back to okay. Well, what does that mean for the timeline? of of things like like exactly. even like, even even if i'm wrong about that what does what does it mean like i'm i'm almost positive i'm not wrong but even if i am how does this prove old earth creation or 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 how does this prove that the bible is not teaching young earth creation and and i'll just drive it further i mean what point is jeremiah trying to make if he's not hearkening back to the literal creation that took place. It's hard to know what he would be talking about. Right. I think that makes uh, perfect sense. And, you know, it, if, and this is one of those things that, you know, you and I have talked about, uh, and whenever I was on your podcast and, you know, I, I presented my kind of view of, hey, here's why I'm a young earth creationist. You can take Genesis one out of the Bible I'm still young earth creationist because all of these ways that they keep saying, oh, well, it's not literal. <laughs> you just removed Genesis 1 from any consideration at all with the timeline sure. and dating of creation. Yep. So you haven't done anything to undermine young earth creationism because you're back to the timeline of biblical history starting at Genesis 2-4. Yeah. So I think, you're, I think, I think you've exactly nailed it.